This is Melanie Lundquist, and we are eliciting the five questions with Dan Shawbell. You're listening to the Five Questions Podcast, and I'm your host, Dan Shawbell. In fewer than 10 minutes, my goal is to extract the best advice from the world's smartest and most interesting people by asking them just five questions. My guest today is philanthropist Melanie Lunchquist. Melanie is one of California's most significant philanthropists and is a giving pledge signatory. Melanie and her husband Richard have pledged more than $400 million over the last decade to support various causes. We talk about how she became a philanthropist and more during this episode. Melanie, welcome to Five Questions. Dan, I am thrilled to be here. What originally inspired you to become a philanthropist and why do you continue to be one? What inspired me the most is watching other people be philanthropists. I came to understand the joy that they get out of their work. Believe it or not, when I was just a kid, I would read the society pages of the Los Angeles Times. And I was always fascinated with the people they would spotlight, like Buffy Chandler. She was just a civic-minded woman who got great things done. And that caught my attention. And I think an important point here is I did not grow up with wealth. I was lower middle class, but my mom and dad both instilled in me the ethos to give back. I know if I didn't hear it once, I heard it at least a million times. You better leave the world a better place than you found it. I remember as a kid, I think I was about seven years old, I walked door to door with the March of Dimes can asking my neighbors for money. I was taught growing up that we have a responsibility to every person on this planet. You know, at some point in our lives, we all need a helping hand. Nobody gets away unscathed. I like to put out that Webster's Dictionary defines philanthropy as the love of humanity. That definition is certainly not tied to the number of zeros on a check. By that definition, everyone should and can be a philanthropist. And giving is all relative, right? Like if you yes. are, are not from great means and it doesn't you give matter. a small fraction, it's still something. Giving can mean different things to different people. It doesn't always have to be money. It could be time That's and right. volunteering. And over the past few years, you've donated to both the news literacy project and the Mm -hmm. McPherson College, as well as join the board of Altice. What goes into your decision about what industries, institutions, and causes you invest in and your personal involvement? Quite a bit goes into our decision-making process. We tend to do a great deal of due diligence. To me, the philanthropic dollars are near and dear. The diligence, the due diligence is very important. We want to know what the mission of the organization is, the fiscal outlook over the years of the organization that it's been in business, their stability, fiscal and otherwise, their leadership, how long have the leaders been there, what the turnover rate is with the staff, as well as the leadership. One of our criteria is we look to make significant impact. Helping an organization create systemic change and bring that change to scale. That's our mission. In the case of McPherson College, we were helping an organization solidify its future. Going to News Literacy Project, that was a desire to find an organization that had the tools, especially in the classrooms, to help save democracy. Yeah, you start off very bold. Here's like the biggest causes that we think have the most impact on probably the widest range of people. And then you go deeper and you do research, you and maybe you have a team that that kind of uncovers, okay, who's doing what and what type of need that, you know, right. what type of needs do they help? And then you kind of go from there. So it's very, very well thought out. It doesn't happen in, you know, a week or anything. 
What are your insights in the state of philanthropy today? How do these economic factors we face, such as inflation, impact charitable giving as a whole? Like, do you see mm-hmm. that people are mm-hmm. donating mm-hmm. less or a smaller percentage because they have to deal with the higher cost of living? It's absolutely astounding to me. There is over $1.2 trillion warehoused, tax sheltered in foundations and more than $200 billion in donor advised fund in funds and DAFs. What is even more astonishing to me is that every penny of that money has been tax deducted. I think it says a lot about the state of philanthropy today. Money is not flowing to charities with the pace that is needed today. It doesn't reflect where society is at today. I'm not going to entirely blame the philanthropists, the foundations, or the DAFs necessarily, because the tax laws that govern philanthropy were written in 1969 different society at that time. They were written so that it incentivized people to set aside money for charitable purposes. But that incentive was the tax deductions. The laws never took into account that you have to move the money out. And yeah, foundations have the 5% rule. It's such a convoluted formula, by the way. It's awful. Here's the kicker. You can write a check from your foundation for that 5% after you figured out what it's going to be. Write that check to a DAF. There are no rules that govern when DAFs have to take that money out and give it away. They never have to. The way I've answered this to you is really more about public policy, but I do have a few personal feelings about philanthropy. I've never felt that Los Angeles is a particularly charitable city, as it should be given the wealth that's in Los Angeles. Isn't it the fifth largest economy? In the world in the world. And when you read the Philanthropy 50, the list of the most generous philanthropists, Los Angeles is really not well represented. On average, you're going to see more Northern California donors, which makes the Bay Area really more charitable than Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. You've made a pledge of $400 million with your husband to support various causes, some of which you've already outlined. How do you work in partnership with your husband, Richard, to turn that pledge into actionable results? We have meetings together with organizations, and we do a very substantial amount, as I mentioned earlier, of due diligence. With the partnership, we spent nine months on our due diligence because we do take it so seriously. And it goes back to their patterns of fiscal responsibility, leadership, the things we spoke about a little bit earlier. And a lot of those are intertwined. Like I study labor. Absolutely. And if you have a high attrition rate, typically you can point the finger to leadership. That's right. So yeah, it's the leadership that we spoke about earlier. So we look for that very visionary leadership that has continuity and consistency. Because every time you start over with a new leader, you start over with a new plan. And there's no continuity and consistency in that. So to make it efficient, it's got to have very, very good visionary leadership. And what's your best piece of career advice? The best piece of advice is be philanthropist. It has nothing to do with how many zeros on the check, as we mentioned earlier. And it comes in so many ways and forms, time, talent, treasure. We should all view philanthropy in this way because it's really how we lift each other up. It's how we level the playing field. It's how we act in a very civil, kind, respectful way to each other in our society. Last week, I was speaking at Bakersfield College in their speaker series. I ended the speech by offering career advice that actually surprised some of the students because I said, remember the California redwoods, trees, but not just any trees. 
These are majestic trees that grow to 275 feet tall. The oldest coastal redwood is 2,520 years old. These are trees that go 13 stories high. What I also pointed out is that the redwoods have incredibly poor root systems. These giant trees often only have roots that are five to six feet deep. How do they stand tall for thousands of years? How do they do that? The answer is really simple. And I think it's a very much a metaphor for what society should look like. They stand in groves. They stand together. Their roots actually merge and become intertwined. They strengthen each other. They don't stand alone. So part of my career advice is become a Redwood. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, Melanie. To watch the full extended video version of this episode, go to youtube.com slash Dan Bell. And please remember to rate and review the Five Questions podcast on iTunes.